0: Amen. If you have your Bibles and you open up to Philippians chapter three, welcome. Thank you for gathering with us. We're going to continue, <clears throat> excuse me, through our study in this letter in a series we're calling Citizen. <clears throat> Just to begin, before the uh, dawn of what we'll call the current COVID context we find ourselves in, you may or may not have known that over 60 million people enjoyed gym memberships. Every January, this number actually sees a dramatic increase as more people are resolved to get back in shape in the new year. However, statistics reveal that 80% of those who join in January will have quit and canceled their memberships by June. Half of the memberships that will continue will really go uh, on a regular basis to look good. The other half will continue to spend more than $500 a year just to feel good about thinking about looking good. Now, even though COVID has slowed this industry just to a standstill, a lot of gyms are closed, it hasn't really lessened our passionate pursuit of fitness training through all kinds of diets and home gyms and all kinds of things. Some of us here, I won't identify who is who. Maybe those gym rats that are in the gym every day, all the time. Some of us may have never darkened the door of a gym. Others may have a membership that you have never used or forgotten you had. But I think most of us probably believe we could be in a little better shape. I've learned as I've gotten older that... Just daily life begins to make parts of your body hurt that you didn't even know you had. And if you are younger than 40, you're just going to have to take my word for it because your muscles begin to just, things just break. I'll just put it that way. Now, this is why we go to gyms. And actually in the Bible has something to say about that. Paul uh, wrote about the value of actually training, Physical training, even in addition to some other things. In his letter to Timothy's first letter, he wrote this train yourself, which is a Greek word. It's actually, it actually looks like gymnazo, it's gymnazo, um, which means just exercise vigorously, but train yourself for godliness. And then he writes, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul does acknowledge that there is value to going to the gym physically, that it does produce, I think without argument, a better, more enjoyable physical life on earth if you are in generally good shape. And seeing as 70% of Americans are either obese or overweight, it's likely that most of us are not living our best life now. But spiritually speaking, I would argue that the percent of people, quote, out of shape is much larger than 70%. And this is why Paul, I think, emphasizes this idea of training for godliness, which he says has greater value in every way. We think, well, what ways would that be? Relationally, materially, emotionally, physically, mentally, socially, every way. And it not only has value for the present life. He says has value for the life to come. Now, Paul often likes to use athletic metaphors to describe the normal Christian life. And in Paul's view, it could be said that the Christian life is akin to a marathon of maturity. A marathon of maturity. 26.2 miles, I only know that because people put little stickers on the back of their cars I once put a sticker 0.0 on the back of it just to spite them. But the reality is, the exception of a few freakazoid people, no one just goes and runs a marathon, right? There's a few people maybe that could be like, you know, I feel like running a marathon. And they could just go do it, sign up and run. Most people, it's gonna take months of training to be able to run to five hours straight and actually finish before the lights go out, right? It's, it's going to take quite a bit of training. Well, I would argue that spiritually running for a lifetime takes even more. It takes even more discipline. It takes more sacrifice. It takes more intentionality and direction and stamina. Even though we are called onto the track, if you will, By grace, through faith, the Spirit that God has given us in Christ has been given to us that we might run. That we might, as Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What does this have to do with Philippians? I'll try to make a connection for you. You see the Philippian church is a young church it's being attacked by wolves inside the flock. And what that means is that there are Christians, really Jewish Christians in the church that are telling the Philippian Christians or the members of this church that faith in Jesus alone is not good enough. In fact, they are teaching that in addition to Jesus righteousness that they to manufacture a little bit of their own righteousness by following the laws and the various traditions of the Jewish faith. So explicitly or implicitly, directly or indirectly, these false teachers are declaring the Philippian faith as immature and their own as having arrived. You're not like us, but you need to be. Now, Paul has a lot of love for the Philippian church and very little patience for these kinds of teachers. He encountered the same kinds of teachers in the book of Galatians, the church of Galatians, and he wrote a letter to them. And in that letter, he addressed those who were calling for the same thing, namely that you need to be circumcised in addition to believing in Jesus. And to them, he did not mince words. You can read it yourself in the letter to the Galatians, he says, I wish those who unsettle you, would cut it all off. You can interpret what that means. He was not happy about it. And he uses such strong language, not because of the actual religious practice. Paul himself was circumcised. It's because how they view that practice or what they're obtaining from doing that practice See, Paul understands better than anyone because he himself was a professional varsity-level Pharisee. He says, look, in terms of righteous rule following, I was like blameless. I did it better than anybody. And he says, despite his relatively perfect obedience, he goes, I actually um, fell short. My goodness, as good as it was, way better than you guys, was not good enough. And that's because the goodness required to be in relationship with a good God can only come through faith in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've shared before, the truth of that salvation by grace, not earning it, but salvation by grace through faith, I get Jesus' righteousness, he takes my unrighteousness, like that truth, it can lead you into two or one of two ditches. One of the ditches is like, well, I don't have to do anything since Jesus has done everything. I don't have to do anything now that I'm saved. Let's go about my life. The other ditch is the one that says, well, I need to do something to make sure I complete what Jesus started or that I don't lose my salvation. Those are both non-gospel Even though Paul condemns any form of righteous merit winning by godly living, he doesn't actually condemn the intentional pursuit of godly living. He's like, look, you're not doing it to get merit. You're not doing it to earn your salvation. You're not doing it to make sure you stay saved. But it is a goodness in pursuing Godliness. Even though he is completely redeemed, even though he is secure in his adoption, that God is not kick him out of his family if he messes up too big. He also knows that he has some growing to do, that he's not perfectly fit. He's spiritually wealthy, wealthier than anyone, and yet he knows he's not spiritually perfectly healthy. That there's some maturity that he can live in. So, In the previous life, before Jesus, when he was that professional varsity-level Pharisee, he thought too highly of himself. But now, having been saved by Jesus, he sees himself rightly. And rightly is this. You realize he has a lot of work to do. Much further to go. This is why in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, he writes this. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. So, all of us must view ourselves rightly. And by rightly, I mean this, we are a people, we are individuals who have not yet arrived. And what I mean by that, when we look at ourselves spiritually, when we consider our walk, when we think about our relationship with Jesus, when we think about the health of our Christian faith, however you want to describe it, we should all be in a place of like, yeah, I haven't quite arrived yet at perfection. Now, for some of us, you know, that's that's easy. Like, yeah, I know, I'm a screw-up. The question is, how do you view yourself and do you view that with kindness or do you view it with contempt? Because we have to be careful. When we reflect, and Paul calls us to reflect, he calls us to examine ourselves. I think it's important. We have to be careful not to go from self-reflection to self-contempt. Because if you go from self-reflection to self-contempt, you've gone too far. That's not where Jesus goes. It is good and right to go, man, I've got a far to go. But not to beat yourself up. Now, unlike the false teachers, Paul the apostle, right? Paul the miracle worker, Paul the pastor, Paul the teacher, Paul the church planter, Paul the I've done a lot for Jesus. He doesn't believe that he has arrived yet. Or in his words, that he's obtained resurrection yet. And he isn't beating himself up like, yeah, I'm just so horrible, I haven't gotten there yet. He just recognizes where he's at in his walk. And by resurrection here, he's not talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this one event. He's talking about really the culmination of the Christian life. At our final resurrection, that is when we come into perfection. That is when with, with Jesus' face. That is when we're fully restored and everything God has designed us to be. And he goes, look, I'm not there. And I'm not going to be there yet until... I die. So until that point, until Jesus returns or you return to him, you and I, we are redeemed works in progress. Now, what does that mean about Paul? Paul the apostle, Paul this guy that did all these things, he struggled with the same things that we struggle with. He struggled with doubts, he struggled with fears, he struggled with sins. If he was a normal person, and yet acknowledging that God has yet to complete the work he began in him paul speaks about his responsibility to press on to press on and that phrase is a running an athletic phrase it has to do with running really with passion with purpose now just as a little bit of a aside i've never understood running i don't like running I know there are runners in here. I love you, I don't get you. okay. I used to run like well, I run with my wife occasionally, usually walk, but we never we used to run together, and now we just run at the same time. If you it stands like I'm just a bad runner. That's why I never liked it. but I really don't understand running. I don't understand any sport that really has, like, no points or ball or anything like that. It doesn't make sense to me. But what I really don't understand about um, running is, like, first of all, all you do, it's the activity that you start and stop. That's it. No points, no game, no winner, really. But then there's people that pay money to run courses that they could run at any time for free that's the other part i don't understand so then i was like really thinking about like why would someone run a, pay money to run a race get a t-shirt that's cool i guess but why and here's why i think it is we run races or people run races because it does provide you necessary direction it does provide for you a goal it does provide focus for the passion And that's a good thing. Paul writes that his motivation for running is because Jesus has made him his own, right? Jesus paid money, if you will, paid his entry fee, and he paid it with the blood on the cross. Now, do you understand that he didn't pay that so that Paul could just put on running gear? You guys have seen the people with the gear, like the biking gear, the running gear, like he... He didn't have pay for it so you can get the sweatbands and the t-shirt and the sweats and the nice shoes and go, yeah, I'm a runner, and then stand still. He put him in the race so that he could actually run. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, using the same imagery, this, he goes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, something imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. Just, oh, I'm just going to run. He doesn't box as one beating the air, right? He's not a pretender. He he actually fights when he boxes. Discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself, should be disqualified. He runs with purpose. He runs with intentionality. He runs with energy. He runs to win. And so I can stand and be like, yeah, you should run to win. Amen, let's go. And you're like, what does that even mean? Good question. There are many of us here who practically speaking are fast runners. I'm guessing there are probably some slow runners here. I'm guessing there are probably some ugly runners. And by ugly runners, you know what I mean. People just look weird when they run. If you saw me run, or even if you see me walk, you probably will look at it now. I am extremely bow-legged. I look like I should be on a horse. And it's just odd. I'm faster than lightning. You wouldn't believe that, but I'm fast. But I look weird when I'm running. Like, why? You, that's weird, right? So... Everyone runs different. We all have a different style. It looks weird sometimes. People like do weird things with their arms and like, but you can tell when someone's running and when someone's standing still. That you can tell, even if it looks different. So regardless, right, try to bridge here. Regardless of the spiritual running, what your spiritual running looks like, because all of ours looks different. Some of us connect with the Lord Through prayer, extreme prayer. Through study. Through service. Through all all kinds of whatever your spiritual running looks like. I would say that every marathon of maturity has two characteristics, regardless of how you run or what it looks like. Paul writes him in verse twelve. He says, "Brothers." I do not, or 13, sorry. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, he really is going to say two things, but it is one thing, we'll bring it back. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to run and to run to win and to press on? It's two things. First thing of what it means to run to win, to press on is to forget what lies behind. What does that even mean? Well, there's a difference between remembering the past and being governed by it. We are not to dwell on the past. There is a kind of dwelling on the past that actually hinders our present efforts and our future progress. Now, if you had kids or if you've seen kids, you probably have seen, I don't know what age it is, it's a pretty young age, maybe three to six, somewhere in there. Little kids have a tendency to run forward as they're looking backwards. Every one of my kids has done it. It's weird. Like what? No, don't do that. Like you see them start running full speed like, Hey dad, don't worry really. And then it, bam, they hit something and they trip. Because that's what they do. And you look at that and you're like, Yeah, that's not how you should run. Like that's not only strange looking, it's dangerous, right? Something's going to happen bad. Okay, so let's make the spiritual bridge. Running forward and looking backward is dangerous and unhelpful. It's dangerous and unhelpful. We can't run the race that is set before us if we're so focused on what is behind us. Like what kinds of things? Let me give you a couple to think about. Regret over sin. Remorse over loss. Resentment over hurt. Even romancing the past. Some success or good time we can get stuck looking back at regret, at remorse, at resentment, and even romance at the expense of running forward. We can trip, we can fall, we can hurt ourselves or others. And it doesn't mean forgetting isn't like completely wiping your brain clean. How do I know that? Well, Paul has provided his resume of righteousness earlier. And what I mean by that, his resume of pre-Christ unrighteousness, really. He's written it. He writes it multiple times. It isn't just forgetting those things, but it is keeping them in their right place and not being governed by them. It's unlikely you'll be able to forget it completely but it doesn't have to control you. In fact, I would argue until you actually look back at some of those things, you won't be able to move forward. You have to face some of those things. And Paul has faced it. In fact, he's named it for what it is. That was wrong. I had a lot of gain and I caused a lot of pain. But he's not being governed by it any longer. I like what Dan Allender says, he says, the work of restoration cannot begin until a problem is fully faced. So you do have to face it. But it's so you can strain forward, which is the second thing. Those who press on, those who are running to win are straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul describes running as, as stretching, it's literally strain, like stretching to the finish line, every nerve, every muscle pushing towards this end. His entire life is about running well. His entire life is like, what do I gotta remove so that I can run well? And whether slow or whether fast, he is always moving forward. This is a pursuit of perfection. He knows he's not going to arrive. He hasn't arrived yet, but it's the pursuit of perfection in preparation for eternity. Now, we know what this is like in so many other areas of our life. And what I mean by that is we pursue perfection in lots of other places. We do this out of joy. We want to get better. We want to get be the best at something because we expect when we arrive at the best and we're better that we're gonna have this deep sense of satisfaction or feeling of accomplishment. We do this with sports, young and old. But they sacrifice, they invest, they they make great commitments because they want to become the best. They want to be better. We do this with hobbies. Like, I want to I be really good at this. I want to be really good at that. And so they invest money and time and energy to be better. And that's great in the pursuit of perfection. We do it at our jobs. We want to succeed at our jobs. We want to get promoted at our jobs. We want to do well at our jobs. And so we make sacrifices and, and do things to become better. Even pursue perfection. Part of the problem, though, although those are intrinsically evil, what we will find if we do arrive, that it's not as satisfying as we thought it was. It doesn't provide the the contentment or fill the emptiness that we might have felt. I'm always reminded of what Boris said. I know it's an old name. He was a tennis pro. He was the youngest guy to win kind of the number one spot. I think he was age like 17. This is years ago. But after he arrived at number one, they asked him like, man, so you, you've, you've climbed to the top, you're number one. Like, how does it feel? And he simply said, I wish someone would have told me when you got to the top of the mountain that nothing's there. He was totally dissatisfied. He had sacrificed a ton. He had committed his life to being perfect. And in many ways, he had arrived. He's like, yeah, not real satisfying actually. And many of us are convinced, like, well, I don't like tennis, but if it's this, it's this. And like, pick whatever you want. Then go read the book of Ecclesiastes and see the guy who actually pursued every single thing there was. And at the end went, yeah, it's meaningless. And so it's not that we should pursue perfection in any of those things. It's like, when we really step back and contrast my pursuit of godliness, what does that look like in terms of my pursuit of everything else? Am I running that hard towards godliness? Because the best prize the world has to offer just doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. And given enough age or time, it ultimately fades away. The prize that Paul pursues is the upward call of Christ, he says. The upward call. So the vertical call... Is being contrasted with every other horizontal call. And it's not saying it's either or saying this is just better, it's greater. He's pursuing this upward call. He is straining to, to towards something. You go, what is that something exactly? Well, it is a more rich and more faithful Christian life. And you're like, well, what does that even mean? Praying more? Reading my Bible more? Great question. If you want to, like, what, is it, what does it mean? What's a Christian life look like? I think one of the best descriptions of the Christian life is to read Jesus' sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, his Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he actually exposes or teaches, not, this is what you need and how you need to live in order to get into my kingdom. He says, this is how those in my kingdom live. His sermon's not about how Christians ought to live, but ultimately how Christians are meant to live. The way that God made us to live. The path that he called us to walk. And so if you step back, you go like, forgetting and straining, that's the language of repentance. It's really a life of repentance. Turning from a way I was running and toward running another way. I'm forgetting and I'm straining. And this is what the Sermon of the Mount is really about. Like those who are saved by Jesus live a life of repentance. We're always turning and running. We're always evaluating what we turn from and what we turn toward. In the terms of the Sermon of the Mount, this is what it means. Like, okay, what am I straining towards? It is a people who are stopping being prideful and beginning to be humble. It's when we stop laughing at sin and we start mourning over it. It's when we stop trusting our own strength and we begin to trust in God's. It's when we stop hungering for just happiness in the world, begin to hunger for the righteousness of Christ. It's when we stop demanding our rights and we begin to show mercy, even to those who have hurt us. It is where we stop dividing our devotion and we begin to see Jesus as supreme in our lives. Is when we stop trying to keep the peace and we actually begin to start making the peace. You see that the Christian life and the race we're running is much less about achievement and much more about attitude, heart attitude. This is a heavenward run. And the prize is our Lord and Savior saying, well done. Well done. Now, it doesn't matter how you run. What matters is that you run. Because as you get to the finish, everyone gets the prize. Let me make the point for you a little more clearly. There's a great book by an author and teacher, his name is Bob Goff. I can't remember what book it is exactly it's from. But he tells a story how he and a friend decided that they would sail across the Pacific Ocean from Los Angeles to Hawaii. And they were going to participate in this TransPAC race, a famous race. And usually for safety reasons, they basically only allowed boats that were 45 feet or longer because it's a treacherous trip. But for this year, for some reason, they allowed smaller boats, and they had a smaller boat, so they signed up their 35-foot sailboat. So the plan is quite simple. They're going to sail 2,600 miles across the ocean in a VW bus-sized space, going about seven miles per hour. They had originally planned for six guys to be on the trip, one of whom was a navigator from the U.S. Navy. They figured, we better have that guy, but at the last minute, he couldn't come. And so Bob, the author, who knew absolutely nothing about navigation and very little about sailing, gave himself a crash course in sea navigation and they, quote, did their best. Needless to say, they took a very long time. The tradition, though, of this race is that no matter when you finish the race, no matter what hour it is at night or morning, a man officially welcomes each person Home, And so in his own words, this is what it sounded like. He writes, It was a few hours before dawn. It had been 16 days since we set out from L.A. in our little boat, knowing very little about navigation. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny boat. Somewhat, the way he said it, it it sounded like we were the size of an aircraft carrier. They, he started announcing the names of a ragtag crew like he was introducing heads of state. And one by one, he announced our names and obvious pride in his voice. And it became a very emotional moment for everyone on board. I'd led us on to get there, but he didn't tell everyone. I didn't even know the way north. It was about all the other mess ups that I had. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. And when he was done, there was a pause. And then, in a sincere voice, his last words to the entire crew were these Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Because of the way he said it, we all welled up and fought back tears. I wiped my eyes as I reflected in that moment about all the uncertainty that had come with the journey, all the sloppy sailing, and how little I knew. But none of that mattered now because we had completed the race. I always kind of thought of heaven might be that kind of experience. Where you walk in to the gates, and the Lord says, welcome. Yeah, I, I, I would have been here. Saying, welcome. Great job. Not list for you all the ways you... Didn't run right, or the different times you got off course, or the ways you stumbled, or things. Not at all. Well done. Way to run. Good job. What glory is that? What motivation is that? It's not how you run, it's that you run. Paul ends his passage with a final admonition for the church and the false teachers within. I read the last two verses, verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what kind of sounds like a little subtle jab to the guys who think they're mature and perfect, he says, look, you want to call yourself mature? You're going to think this way, the way I just explained. And what is the way he just explained? Well, in summary, When you consider your run, your first thought, at least the first thought of those immature, are not of how well you've run or how poorly you've run, but what Jesus has done for you. That's your first thought. Those who are mature are unafraid to admit that they have not yet arrived and that they don't actually have every answer. Those who are mature realize that they are not in the race because of their purity or their ability, but because Jesus saves really lame sinners and makes them into runners. Those who are mature realize that the race of the Christian life is certainly not a sprint. It's a marathon. What that means is that those who are mature know that it's normal to struggle. And sometimes running is going to feel like you have that second wind I have experienced that once or twice maybe, right? We feel like, I can just keep running forever. And there'll be times where we feel like you hit the wall. Like you want to quit. Don't. Just keep running. Those who are mature realize, lastly, that it's easier to run with a group of people than it is to run alone. And why is that? Because simply, sometimes I need someone to encourage me to stay the course, to encourage me to keep going, to help me get up if I've stumbled and fall. And sometimes I need to be that person who's encouraging and helping others run when we can do this through Christ who strengthens us. Paul could easily pull his apostolic authority card and basically go, come on, get running, go. If you don't, you're going to hell. He doesn't do that. In fact, he humbly offers the example of his life. And in doing so, the apostle teaches us that, guess what? It's okay to not be okay. And he encourages the Philippians to follow his example. Not because he is perfect, but precisely because he is not. <clears throat> and this not only guards us from self-contempt or feeling like you're a really cruddy runner, it actually protects you and helps you to show compassion to others who may not be running as fast as, or similar to you. Neither Paul nor any pastor ought to judge whether someone is thinking or running maturely or not, because, as Paul says, there is a Holy Spirit. He reveals a lot. I don't need to get on get in his way. You're not the Holy Spirit, and neither am I. We'll leave it to the Lord. As the Apostle John wrote, "The anointing that you receive from Him, the Spirit, abides in you." and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, just abide in him. My job as your pastor is to call you to hold true to what you do know and what you are certain about Jesus. You may not know everything about him or everything about the Christian faith, but I believe in the gospel you know enough to start running and in the right direction. It may be slow. It may be clumsy. It may just be different than someone else. But you are called to press on. And if you stay the course, you will finish. And you will hear, well done. Well done. If you're not a Christian, you're not even in the race yet. You're still a spectator trying to run or be a runner. And the truth is, you're not even going to be able to begin apart from Christ. You're going to be so stuck in your past. And so I would encourage you to receive the free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. All the shame and the guilt and the brokenness and the mistakes, Jesus stands ready to cleanse that. Put a nice Christian running suit on you and let you run with joy for the prize set before you. If you are a Christian, some of you have been sitting on the curb for a long time. Maybe you got in the race a long time ago and you forgot that it was a race, that you're supposed to be moving forward, that you can't sit on the curb and drink the water and sponge yourself for the next 70 years. Start running. It's never too late to start. And the prize hasn't changed. It's still the same. My prayers that you will be encouraged to move, knowing that the finish race, that you finish the race, you'll win.